look at Genesis 27 today. But before we do that, uh, I'd like for us to look at the last part of Genesis 26 um, because it will pertain very directly to what we'll read in Genesis 27. So take a look, Genesis 26, beginning in verse 34. And while you're turning there, did you have a chance to hear from Dr. Robinson yet today? Are you going to go to the next service? Please don't miss. He's just a wonderful person, been in our area for years and years. And he'll be doing, as you've heard, the seminar uh, tonight at 5 o'clock on how to share our faith with people around us. It's at 5 o'clock, and I'm looking forward to it. Many of us are. Please, please come if you're able. He's a wonderful man with a real heart for lost people and learned some things about how to share the gospel with them. So Genesis 26, verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, what was the name of Esau's brother? Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were the sons of what parents? What were their names? Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, you got it. So when Esau, was he the older or younger brother? He's the older one. So when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite. What's another name for Hittites? This is, I'm not sure I'm asking the question well. Um, Canaanites. The Canaanites, sort of an, um, oftentimes in the Bible, uh, not always, but oftentimes kind of an umbrella term for all the other ites, parasites. Hevites, Girgashites, all of those are under the general umbrella, Canaanites, hence the expression land of Canaan, land of Canaan. That's where the Canaanites, all these different people groups lived. And so the Hittites are a subgroup of the Canaanites. Esau marries not one, but two Hittite ladies. Judith is one, and then the second is Basemath. She's the daughter, it says, of Elon the Hittite. So this is not a good thing because God didn't want this kind of intermarriage. Um, In fact, he legislated against it. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 7. He said, when you go into the land, you shall not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons. Why not? Well, they'll turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, you see. So God said, don't do it. He had a covenant people, also ites, Israelites. He has a a line of promise, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and tribe of Judah and so on, from whom Messiah is going to come. And he wants to preserve and protect the line of Messiah. And so he doesn't want intermarriage. By the way, this is the Old Testament equivalent of a New Testament uh, teaching on the subject in Corinthians, which says, and do not be, what? Unequally yoked. And that also means someone with a different spiritual value system. In other words, a believer marrying a non-believer. You see, that partnership wouldn't be fair to either Uh, inevitably the value systems would come to be in conflict with one another. It would be quite a hardship for the unbeliever and quite a hardship for the believer. And the Lord who wants us to live life well uh, tells us not to do it. So that's an Old Testament concept, but it's carried on in the New Testament 
meaning it's even for today. So Esau seems to have no problem violating this very clear directive. He seems not to be all that interested in spiritual things. This is an understatement. So he takes not one Hittite wife, but two. And in fact, later on in Genesis 35, I think it is, if we ever get there, actually Genesis 28, it looks like he takes a third woman. Her name is Mahalath, in addition to the wives he already has. So it's polygamy, and it's not only polygamy, it's a polygamous relationship with non-Israelite wives. And the uh, effect of all this is very telling. It's given in verse 35, and they... That is to say, Esau's wives brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Grieving parents because their son chose life partners uh, they disapproved of because God disapproved of this particular choice. So earlier, Esau, you recall, despised his birthright. Remember, he gave it up for what? Yeah, for for soup. It probably was lentil soup. He said. He said, "Give me some of that red stuff." It was probably was was red lentils, which is still quite uh, often consumed in the Middle East today. So, for food, he exchanged his birthright, uh, showing us he doesn't have a keen interest in spiritual things because the birthright, the right of the firstborn, entailed receiving the premier blessing of the patriarch, the father. And in this case, it would have been the passing on of the blessing of Messiah, being in the line of Messiah. But Esau said, I'm hungry. Give me some of that red stuff. Now, Abraham earlier on took pains to make sure that Isaac, his son, would not do what Esau, his grandson, did. Abraham took pains to make sure Isaac would marry an Israelite and not a Canaanite. And so in Genesis 24, this was a long time ago, we read Abraham was old, advanced in age. The Lord blessed him in every way. Abraham said to his servant, um, uh, place your hand under my thigh. That seems a little strange, but that sort of meant shake hands on the deal. (laughs) Keep your word. I will make you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and of earth. Uh, You shall not take a wife for my son, see from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But instead, go to my country, my relatives, take a wife for my son Isaac. Genesis 24 told us this was no easy thing. Uh, The servant had to travel quite a distance. Anyway, found Rebekah there, and uh, she married Isaac. So Abraham's concern seemed not to be shared by his son Isaac. We don't have an indication that Isaac gave the same instruction to his son Esau. It just appears that neither the son nor the father had keen spiritual interests. Isaac, you'll see, seems to really be slipping in terms of his sense of spiritual priorities. You'll see that now that we go into Genesis 27. So, What you'll see in Genesis 27 is that all of the key players, everyone on stage in this chapter is flawed and sinful. 
There's not, there's no one of heroic proportion in Genesis chapter 27. And the males, the females, the old, the young, the four key players you'll see have one thing in common, and that is all of them seem to have a sinful inclination. In other words, they're people just like us. So you'll see this here. Now, verse 1, it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see. Uh, he called his older son Esau, said to him, my son. He said to him, here I am. Isaac said, behold, now I'm, I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. So he's sort of preparing for his departure now, maybe a little early. <clears throat> if you do the math, he's 137 at this time. But according to Genesis 35, verse 28, he doesn't actually die till he's 180. <laughs> so he's saying his goodbyes 43 years in advance. <laughs> it's nice to be prepared, but that's maybe overdoing it. So uh, anyway, he, he's old, it's true, and he's advanced in years. He can't see very well. He wants to prepare. And so verse 3, he says to his oldest son Esau, by the way, who was his favorite, Esau or Jacob? Yeah, but it was Esau. Who was Rebecca's favorite? Jacob. Yeah, that's going to blow up in this chapter. So verse 3, please take your gear, Isaac is saying to his oldest son Esau, your quiver, bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me. Prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love. Bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. So... Uh, there's a lot wrong here for crying out loud. Look, let's say you think you're near death. The things you do last, the things you say and do, have great impact, don't they, on those around you. Is this what's on your mind? Food? Am I missing some? And then he makes the blessing contingent on the delivery of the food. Esau hears the deal. I'm going to give you the blessing of the firstborn after you give me a savory dish, which I love. Wild game. He liked the meat of wild game. Is this what's on your mind? Is this, is this the kind of transaction you want to have with your kids? You know, before you say, before you go away? I mean, it just shows something of what's on Isaac's mind. And... You know, like father, like son, so to speak. Um, uh, Isaac seems to be centered on food, and so was Esau. You correctly indicated Esau exchanged his birthright for food. Like father, like son. This isn't the activity of God in the sense that God is imposing this consequence. This is naturally what happens. We simply pass on stuff to our kids. What could I tell you? So uh, that's what's happening. Now, there's something else kind of wrong with what Isaac is up to in verse 4. See where he says, do this, bring me the food so that my soul may, my soul may bless you. Can you imagine? Can you think of anything that's wrong with that? Anyone have any ideas? It's a little tricky. Yes. This is an unbelievably accurate observation. We're going to talk about it just a second, but this looks like it's a very private transaction between Isaac and Esau, which is not customary. When the patriarch's blessing is being passed on to the first 
born. The firstborn is going to become spiritual leader and all the rest. It was a rather public affair. All the family members were made privy to it. But in this case, it just seems to be a private conversation between Isaac and the son he favored, Esau. A little weird. Anything else about that that strikes you the wrong way? Yes, sir. Okay, this is observation, the blessing from his soul. That's just a sort of an expression um, emanating from, from the sum total of my life, that kind of thing. Now, didn't God earlier on already determine who would receive the blessing? And who did God say while these two, Jacob and Esau, were still enwombed, who did God say was to be blessed? Jacob. Remember, he said, the older shall serve the younger. So Isaac here seems to be acting in total disregard of God's preordained plan. Now, it is not customary for the younger brother to inherit the blessing. And by the way, as you see the line of Messiah unfold, nothing is customary for crying out loud. Nothing is due to pedigree. Nothing is due to performance. It's all due to the grace of God. So he's kind of confounding our expectations here. Nonetheless, he said the the older will serve the younger. But Isaac essentially says, no, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. I favor the older, and he's a good hunter, and he's going to make me some good, good food here. You see, in Genesis 25, verse 33, it says pretty clearly, the older shall serve the younger. Those were God's, God's words. So anyway, both father and son seem to be f- focused on fleshly interests and also what their senses tell them to be true, as you will see. But first, verse 5, Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Was she eavesdropping? Yeah, probably. But you didn't have to try too hard. Remember, they lived in a tent. So if there were rooms in the tent, what divided one room from another was cloth. So you didn't have to really try hard to hear. And Aspen pointed out the reason she had to listen that way is that she wasn't invited in. Rebecca wasn't there. Jacob wasn't there. One gets the impression Isaac knew this was not right. This was wrong. This could have been challenged. In fact, God's word could be invoked. Rebecca could have said, you must not do this because God said the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. So all along the way, you will see there were many opportunities, checks in Isaac's spirit that could have stopped him right away. That's true of everyone here. Everyone has a plan to do something their way. And all along the way, there were many, many opportunities to stop doing it before it actually was fulfilled. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, verse 6, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, and that was her favorite, wasn't he? So we don't ever want to do this, do we? Show favoritism 
amongst our kids or grandkids. We don't ever want to do it. Look, if you're a stamp collector and one of your children is interested in stamp collecting, there's nothing wrong with enjoying that activity together. Just don't go out of your way to give any hint of the fact that you favor that child over any other. Don't do that. Uh, In other words, we're supposed to parent the way God parents us. Who in this room, uh, could you point to the person, who in this room is loved more by God than anyone else in this room? Could you identify that one? Let me put it this way. Who in this room is loved less by God than anyone else in this room? Can you point to that person? Yeah, good. I'm, I always panic when I do something like that because <laughs> someone's going to point. Yeah, you see, it doesn't work that way, and that's how we want. Now, 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 God, I think, approves of the choices of some in this room more than he does the choices of others. That's different. But, but, but we have his approval, not on the basis of what we do. We have his approval on the basis of the fact that we're his kids. If you're a Christian, that is, you see. That's the base. And that's how God wants us to parent. He wants us to make a difference between our children's performance and their personhood. You know, he, he wants us to love our kids for no good reason. <laughs> Just because. They are ours. You see, that's how it's how. So that that didn't happen in this household. And oh my goodness, it's it's causing terrible friction at home. So she says, uh, I heard, you know, verse six, your your father speak to your brother Esau saying, bring me some game, prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat. I may bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Are you, is that good or bad? I mean, doesn't the Bible say honor your father and mother? So is it, what do you, how do you feel about this? She said, listen to me as I command you. Well, you have any, is that good? Is it bad? Okay, good, thanks. I'll tell you what I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's generally a good thing. Unless what the parent requires is contrary to the will of God then we must obey God rather than even father or mother. That's the order of priorities, right? We can't allow parents to require of us things that God finds to be sinful. That's not the way it works. And so so she's about to involve her son in very well-developed, thought-through, premeditated deception to... to to come into God's will in a fleshly way. It's not just enough to have God's will. It has to be God's will, God's way, God's time. So she works out this plan. Listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock. Bring uh, two choice goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. So let me tell you something. You have to be quite the cook to be able to make goats (laughs) taste like wild game meat. So she's like the master chef. There's some good qualities Rebecca has. You know, she's like a culinary queen, for crying out loud, to be able to pull that off. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you uh, before his death. You know, all this is totally unnecessary because that's exactly what God said is going to happen, remember? He said, again, before birth, 
there are two children in your room. These are two nations. The older shall serve the younger. So she's trying to help God out. Boy, does that ever get us into trouble. So there's a couple things we could do wrong. One is to, is to not do God's will. And the second thing is to try to usher in God's will too soon. Abraham and Sarah tried to do this, didn't they? They couldn't have children. But God had promised Abraham a multitude of nations and stuff like that. So they know it's God's will for them to have children, but they don't yet have children. Why don't we get children? So Sarah comes up with this plan. Abraham, why don't you go into Hagar, father a child through her, you know, and that kind of deal. Oh, my goodness. And it caused tremendous problems, even down to this very day on an international scale in the Middle East. Really, we can trace it back to that. So, yeah, having kids for them was God's will, but they tried to usher in God's will outside of God's will in their way. That gets us in big, big trouble. Waiting on God is a challenge for us, isn't it? Waiting on God. So we want to help God in blessing us. And usually it ends up not, not being good at all. So Jacob answered his uh, mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. So that's, I can relate to Jacob a little bit here. Uh, perhaps my father will... Uh, feel me, and then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. So according to verse 12, what is it that Jacob is most concerned about? Yeah, getting caught. You know what I mean? He should have been concerned about the fact that this is just flat out wrong. You know, all this opportunity, there's a check in his spirit. This crazy ploy, are you kidding? He's hairy. I'm smooth. Oh, no. God's hand is not in this. This is the wrong thing. We're not going to do it. And so his mother intervenes because, you know, she's a Jewish mother. And so verse 13, she says, your curse be on me, my son. What? That's not a good thing. Only obey my voice and go and get them for me. Just do it, she essentially says. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were in with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. Can you see all this? Surely along the way you're hearing the voice of conscience saying, come on, give it up, don't do it. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And so, I mean, does... Does goat skin feel like human hair? I mean, I'm, you think about all this. In the last class, someone said, someone who knew about goats, that yeah, not all goat hair, uh, some goat hair is like curly or something like that. You know about this? I don't know I don't about goats. What do I know? But anyway, he said, yes, yeah, some goat hair is curly, and so it could have had the uh, feel of human. But look at here. If we're thousands of years removed and just seeing all of the ramifications of this, don't you see how many opportunities they had to say, what are we doing here? But they press on. So verse 17, she also gave the savory food and bread which she made to her son Jacob. And he came to his father and he said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Who are you, my son? So why is he asking that question? You know, if he's not certain, isn't that a check in his spirit? Couldn't he be a... He had done things differently. Uh, And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. What is that called? That's called a lie. He's not Esau. 
He said, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Get up, please, sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have it so quickly? See, all kinds of suspicions and doubts are going through his mind, and yet nobody is stopping what they're doing. How do you bring it back so quickly? And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. What is that called? That's another lie. You know what? Specifically, do you know it's a violation of the third commandment? Does anyone know what the third commandment says? Do not use Lord's name in vain. It's actually a Hebraism, which means don't take up something for no good purpose. That's what it means. Don't latch onto something and carry it away for no good reason. That's what it means to do something in vain. To take the Lord's name in vain is to is to lay hold of God's name wrongly, profanely, sinfully for no good purpose. That's what Jacob is doing here. He is uh, connecting God to his decision. But that's not the decision God. God had nothing to do with this. So that's a violation of the third commandment. Have you ever done this? Don't, don't answer. Or I'll do it better. Have you ever known someone? How about that? Who is that? Because you wouldn't. Have you ever known someone who... In the course of justifying something they're choosing to do, have you ever known that person to connect God's name to it? I just know God's hand is ended. I just know, you know, maybe you know someone about to enter into a relationship, and you know it's just not a good relationship. Well, we just feel right about it. We just feel God has given us peace about it. Maybe that, that may be the case, but be very, very careful. Isn't it true that a number of our decisions are ones we've chosen to make and we just want to justify it by uh, invoking God's name? That kind of puts people off. You know, if someone says to me, for instance, I know, uh, you know, uh, we just know the Lord has brought us together. What am I supposed to say? Once you do that, it's like all bets are off, Okay. That, I mean, if you're invoking his name on it, you're sure he's brought you together, then you don't need me for anything. So be careful about, about that. See, that would be not only a violation of the third commandment, but then we would be consequence, because if God's hand is not in it, it can't ever work out. It won't be a, a blessing. And so um, uh, he makes God an accomplice to, to what he's, he's doing. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you. Can you see how he's trying to discern truth only by his senses, his hearing, now his touch, now his touch. Come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice, see his hearing, his his seeing, his touching, senses. You're not going to tell you something. Our senses are not the best way to discern truth. Did you know that? Sometimes we can see something and see something wrongly, hear something and hear it wrongly. The best way to uh, tap into truth is biblical truth, is what God says, not what we taste and touch and see and hear and feel. You got to be real careful about that stuff. But right now, Isaac is just relying, not prayer, not counsel, not nothing, just just his senses. So he felt him. He said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau, you know, because he's feeling the goat's hair and stuff like that. He didn't recognize him, verse 23, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, and, and so he blessed him. 
And he said to him, are you really, even now he has doubts, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. He's lying again. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. And he also brought him wine and he drank. And so first I was saying, you know, well, one explanation for all this is that Isaac had too much to drink. You know, he's drunk. But it looks like he didn't start drinking until he got the meal here. You know, he gets, he gets the meal, he gets wine. His father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled, see, another sense, sensory means of apprehending truth. See, when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and he said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. We could be deceived if all we go on are what our senses tell us to be true. Do you trust yourself that much? Don't do that. Deception is something any of us are prone to. And when you're deceived, you don't know. That's the terrible thing about deception. The one deceived doesn't know he or she is being deceived. That's why you always want to get counsel. The Bible says in abundance of counselors, there is victory. It says through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is victory. So you always want to get counsel. Then you want to consult the scriptures to see if God has already weighed in on that particular issue. You never, you know, the, uh, the Bible says when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Be careful. Our senses can easily deceive us. And so right now, all Isaac is leaning on are his senses. So he smelled the smell of the garments. He blessed him. He said, this is the smell of my son, like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Verse 28, now may God give you of the dew of heaven. So now here's the specific blessing. By the way, the blessings uh, um, imposed by the patriarchs had a prophetic character to them. They're a little different than when we want to be a blessing to our children or grandchildren. These pronouncements had a prophetic signification, as you will see here. And so uh, part of the blessing placed upon now Jacob and his descendants is this. May God give you the dew of heaven. In other words, rain and the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. In other words, agricultural success. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Have you heard that before? That's exactly what God said in Genesis 12, didn't he? He said to Abraham, this is my blessing upon you. Um, Cursed are those who curse you, and blessed are those who bless you. And uh, Isaac now, maybe even without realizing what he's doing, is actually uh, passing on the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob now. It went from Abraham and then to Isaac. It didn't go to Ishmael. It went to Isaac. And now to Jacob, not to Esau. You know what this shows me? In spite of the flaws of human nature, in spite of deliberate deception and sin, for which people are responsible, that's human free will, still there is divine sovereignty. And God may not relieve us of the consequences of our sinful choices, but he will not let our sinful choices interfere with his preordained redemptive plan. He's preserving the line of Messiah passing from Abraham through Isaac through Jacob, and which one of those deserves it? 
None. That's the point. My people historically and very boastfully have taken credit for being the chosen people. We've assumed God's choice of us is that we're better, more attractive, holier than other people groups. Wow, is that not true? There's not a good one of us in the whole lot. You see, it's all of grace. Your redemption is of grace. My redemption is of grace. God's election of Israel for a reason is all of grace and mercy. It has nothing to do with any inherent worth or value uh, as over against any other people group. And so uh, so this is what you get here. Repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 30, it came about. As soon as Isaac, by the way, when people um, uh, develop an anti-Israel stand, they do so generally for good reason. Don't misunderstand. I do not think Israel has a right to the land at all. I don't think so. Based on um, being above board or anything like that, or doing all things well and treating all people well, absolutely not. The reason why I stand with Israel, however, is that God in his sovereignty and mercy has chosen to choose that people and to put them in a particular land. It confounds reason. I agree. But I cannot question God's choice for crying out loud. That's the way it is. So you don't want to stand by Israel because Israel's so hot. Israel is not. You want to stand by Israel because God said, this is the apple of my eye. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Stuff like that. And God has a plan, a redemptive plan, that's to benefit the world through the Jews. If you're interested, come on Wednesday night, and I will really get obnoxious (laughs) about that. We're in Romans chapter 11, and it talks about all this this kind of stuff. So anyway, um, verse 30, it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? He said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And you say, hang on just a second. What do you mean he shall be blessed? He came into the blessing through deception. Surely, therefore, it's null and void, Isaac. Uh, The reason we say that is we live today and not in that day. And in that day, a man's word was his And today, it's not. Today, we make promises we neither intend to keep or surely are unable to keep. (sighs) Happens in the political arena, doesn't it? (laughs) Congressman Weber, I, I, I paused because there are really exceptions. And thank God for an exception. But generally, generally the rule is, this is not particular um, under the purview of any particular political party. I think even sometimes well-intentioned candidates say things they can't possibly believe they're going to be able to pull off. Yes, sir. <laughs> 
Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, an excellent point of view. And our brother said, did you hear? Okay, some didn't, some didn't. Okay. So, uh, our brother was saying, again, with reference to this violation of the third commandment, not using God's name in vain, oftentimes um, political speechmakers finish what they're saying with, um, and may God bless America. And oftentimes that is an illustration of using God's name in vain as well. And you say, how? Look at, <clears throat> if, if someone is not godly and then takes up God's name, that person is taking it up in vain. You see what I mean? It's not to say God bless America in and of itself is, is an unacceptable thing. It's a beautiful thing and a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it really can only be um, um, justifiably invoked by someone who knows God. Uh, uh, you, you can't call upon the name of God until you've called upon him as your Lord and Savior first. You see what I mean? So that's a good illustration. So words, are, I guess my point is, are, are sort of devalued today. I was a chaplain in the military uh, in uh, the Civil War or something a long time ago. <laughs> it is a long time ago. And one of my assignments once was to be at Fort Bliss, Texas, and never was a military installation more inappropriately named. There was nothing blissful about being at Fort Bliss. But anyway, uh, one of my jobs, we were out in the field, and um, uh, I was in a little chapel, and um, every day, the chapel, I might have shared this with you, but forgive me if I have, the chapel would be filled with um, new recruits. It was a basic training base for the Air Defense Command. And so uh, guys were going through basic training, and gals, w- they would fill the chapel in the morning. They were there before I got there, and I thought, my heavens, such spiritual interest. It must be revival time. <laughs> and then I quickly learned that they were there for me to write a letter to their commander authorizing their discharge from the army. <laughs> well, go see the chaplain, you know, he'll write a letter, this kind of deal. And I would sit with young troops one at a time and speak about this. And if I determined that someone w- was really not going to be an asset to the military and we're going to have trouble, eventually might as well deal with this sooner rather than later, I would write that letter recommending either reassignment or, or discharge at that point. Because you look for what's called combat multipliers. In other words, if, if you're going to combat, you can't have, pardon the expression, dead weight. You have to have people who can handle the stress of combat. So that's in basic training. That's when you want to determine who's going to handle it and who can't. So I would write some of those letters, but not many. In other cases, I would look across to a young soldier and I would say, you know, if I didn't care about you, I'd write this letter. But because I care about you, I'm not going to do it. See, because if I do this and help you get out of the contract you signed. When you get out of this, you're going to leave and maybe buy a car, also requiring contractual obligation. And then you may, you, you may violate it. And then you may, you may ask a gal to marry you one day. And, uh, and you're going to express vows. And, and you may devalue y- your, your vows there too and look for an easy out of something you should stay in. And so because I love you, I, I'm not going to, I, I won't provide you with the opportunity of getting out of your contract. I will provide you with the opportunity of supporting you so that you can finish basic training victoriously and fulfill your contractual obligations to your country and to, your, to yourself. So that's kind of how I would do it. But, uh, because words don't mean much of anything. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings here, but if, if we simply honored the vows we took, 
we wouldn't have the divorce rate we had. I mean, am I missing something here? See, look, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, for better or for worse. Wow, that kind of covers a bunch of stuff. Uh, But uh, today, in bad times or in worser times, we 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 seem to exercise that option, and we can get into discussions about biblical grounds for divorce and stuff. That's not my my my, my point. I think you have to agree with me. Just from a numerical point of view, we would surely cut down on the divorce rate if people simply kept the vows they made. They made. See, to me, the most important part of a wedding ceremony is the exchange of vows, not the party time. I know people spend thousands of dollars impressing people with the cake. But what impresses God are the exchange of vows. That's what he's privy to, you know what I mean? So if we, if we just honored, not, not words someone put in your mouth, your own vows, you stated this. You know what I mean? You stated this. I do my best to talk people out of marriage. When a couple comes to me for premarital counseling, I do everything I could to dissuade them from marrying. I mean, I try to cause fights and everything. Better now than later. I want them to figure out. You know, if this guy never changes, he it, it is just not going to ever put down the toilet seat. <laughs> Do you still love him? Will you still stay with him? You know, okay. So, 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 so uh, all that to say, one of the reasons why we don't get why Isaac just didn't change his mind is... Words meant something in those days, you know, particularly verbalization of your, because they didn't have written contracts, notary public and witnesses signing here. Words meant a whole bunch of stuff. So they couldn't easily be withdrawn, particularly when someone was thinking he's departing and passing on a blessing to a particular family member. It stuck. So verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great bitter cry said to his father, bless me, me, even me also, O oh my father. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And then he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob comes from a Hebrew word, which sort of means um, one who grasps at the heel of another. <laughs> he did it in the womb, and he's doing it as a lifestyle. When you grasp at the heel of another, it means to trip that other person up so you can get what's theirs, so you can get ahead. That's exactly right. So you can get hit. Rightly is he named Jacob. He has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Yeah, he sort of took it away, but it wasn't really valued by Esau. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And so, uh, (laughs) you know, he could have had the blessing because the blessing was part of the birthright, but he devalued the birthright. So he forfeited the blessing. But now he wants the blessing, even though he forfeited the, the birthright. So verse 37, Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I've made him your master, and all his relatives I've given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I've sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, now this is the blessing he's going to pronounce on Esau. Tell me if you think it's a, it sounds much like a good, like a blessing. Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven 
from above. By the way, that was, has been fulfilled historically. Esau's uh, relatives are the Edomites, Edomites, Edomites. They're located in what would be present-day Jordan, southern part of Jordan, to the south and the east of the Dead Sea. It's dry and arid away from the dew of... You can go to Israel. You can stand on the Israeli side. You look across the Jordan River Valley, and on the Israel side, it could be fairly lush. Date palms are growing, you know, in the desert through drip irrigation. You look across the Jordan Valley, and you go, oh, my goodness. It's just barren over there on the other side. Interesting. Uh, So down to this very day, this seems to sort of be fulfilled. Verse 40, by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. That's quite the blessing, isn't it? But it shall come about when you become reckless that you will break his yoke from your neck. Holy Toledo. You see, what kind of blessing is this? But remember, the blessing in this day had a prophetic character. Prophetic character. So in many cases, uh, Isaac was sharing simply what God put in his head and heart to share. Because uh, God knew how all this was to unfold historically. And so this has really been been fulfilled. And uh, I don't have to tell you, there's resistance between the Israelites and the Edomites, you might say, down to this, down to this very day. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob uh, because of the blessing. So you see, showing favorites at home doesn't work out. The brothers hate each other. Uh, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Oh, my goodness. So that's not good. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to, Jake, to Rebecca. Now, how did they get back to Rebecca? How did Esau's words get back to Rebecca? We're not told. But I just wonder if he just couldn't control himself. He's so angry now. And he just publicized this. And some of his friends maybe heard, oh, my goodness. Esau wants to kill his brother. Maybe they got word back to Rebecca. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. Stay with him a few days. Twenty years. And during the twenty years, Rebecca dies. She will never see her son Jacob again. I must tell you, it doesn't work when we take matters into our own hands. She never gets to see him. Her, she thought it would just be a few days. Let Esau calm down. 20 years. Because you remember, well, we'll get there. Jacob the deceiver was deceived by Laban, wasn't he? There's all kinds of marriage stuff going on over there. and God uses all this to teach Jacob to grow up. Well, anyway, verse 34, stay there until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? What does she mean by that? Well, if Esau kills Jacob, then she's bereaved of one son. But there was a 
uh, law called the Law of the Blood Avenger, which means the eldest, nearest male relative then could avenge the, the unauthorized death of one of the other family members and kill the murderer. So she's thinking, oh, my goodness, if Esau kills Jacob, one son down, and then if the blood avenger, another family member, kills Esau for it, I can lose two sons in one day. That's what she's thinking. So once again, you know, there's like no prayer going on anywhere here. Nobody's praying about anything. People are just worrying themselves into a fit of contrivance where they have to come up with a plan to protect themselves themselves. And so here's what happens. Verse 46, Rebecca says to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. Heth. She, she fabricates this whole thing. Those are Canaanites in the land. And uh, Esau, we saw at the end of chapter 26, married two of them. She said, I, I, I can't even live because of these daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So here's her ploy. She's going to tell her, she's essentially suicidal. I'm going to die. Uh, husband, you know, Esau married these two gals and they've tormented me. And you know how it's ruined our lives. And, you know, if, if Jacob did the same, I, I just couldn't go on. And this is what she's doing to get Isaac to partner with her in sending Jacob away so as to avoid marrying a Canaanite woman and marry one of his own kind, so to speak. So it's deception again. So, folks, here's the theme of this chapter. We all stink. Amen. (laughs) We do. We just do. You know what? Here's something really interesting. We keep doing the same things those before us have wrongly done. We see the consequences in their life, and we keep doing it, which tells me we really have a problem. We are real sinners. And that tells me education is not the solution. It's, uh, education is, um, is uplifted today as a solution. If everyone just got a good education, now I'm in favor of good education, and people should have equal access to it. I got that. I got it. But that's not the solution information, lack of it, is not our problem. Transformation, that's what we need. I mean, the world is filled, our, our country is filled with highly educated, well-informed people uh, who, who need to be transformed from the inside out. So even smart, informed, educated people continue to repeat sins that prior generations have committed, landed on them. I mean, guys still have affairs even though it's all over the papers. Anyone who has an affair, I mean, if you're a famous, if you're a pastor, you're a politician, somebody, I mean, it's just, we still do this stuff. People still cheat on their income tax refund. People get audited. We know about the laws and stuff like that. People still uh, watch stuff on the computer. They shouldn't. People still text and tweet stuff that comes back to haunt them. What is our problem? Smart people do this. Do you know that? Leave this unbelievable trail. Smart people, which shows me it's not education, it's transformation. What does that mean? When God takes up his abode in our lives and begins to change us from the inside, when we get the mind of Christ, it's no guarantee against sin. I didn't say that. 
but it sure weakens its hold on us. We start thinking in a more Christ-like manner. Not better than anybody, but it surely gives us an edge on other folks. It's a terrible thing in our, in, in, in our lives. It's just unbelievable to me that we're all capable of it. So one of the things Christ has saved us from is the power of sin. Not just the penalty, but its hold on us. So this chapter tells me that, and it also tells me, thank God that he's sovereign. But for the sovereignty of God, we would interfere with his plans. We're not going to be able to. He has a redemptive plan, and it's going to be accomplished. But it's going to be largely in spite of us, for crying out loud. He's entrusted much to us, but he is sovereign and merciful. And out of his sovereignty and mercy, he's still seeking to save those who are lost in in spite of us, in spite of us. He will be glorified. He will be acknowledged as the Lord above all lords and as the king above all kings. And Jesus, who's been humiliated and is ignored even today, will sit on the throne and receive worship, the worship of the nations. God has told us all this. He will establish his earthly reign all the rest. He'll have people who worship him forevermore, whose sins have been forgiven. He's, he will judge forevermore Satan, the father of lies. He will be forever restricted from his evil inclination. God is going to accomplish all of this. And, you know, I got to be frank with you. He doesn't need our help. And he can do what he does even when we are a hindrance to it. This chapter tells me God will have his way. That's the sovereignty of God. It's something to praise him for every day. Oh, God, I praise you that you are in control. Over what? Everything. There's no such thing as an unfortunate turn of events. There's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing if you believe in the sovereignty and mercy of God. What mercy? That means he can use all things for good. Now, that's a sticking point because it's not good as we define it. It's good as he defines it. We know it would be good for us to be healthy and well, live long lives. Sure, that would be good. And for our family members to have the same experience. But apparently, that's not necessarily how God reckons good. His ways are not our ways. He's sovereign and merciful and can use all things for the good as he reckons it. And he can do this even though lots of stuff is not good and lots of us are not good. He can still get it done. What every person in this chapter has in common is that each has sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. But he will be glorified. He will have his way because of his sovereignty and because of his Mercy. You and I are saved today because he sovereignly and mercifully still chose to work through this particular people group in a particular part of the world in order to bring forth a particular Messiah who would offer a particular way of salvation to no one in particular. Anyone who by faith accepts his offer. I feel bad about us. I feel good about the God who loves us. (laughs) We ain't so hot. He is. (laughs) I guess that's why we worship him and not one another. So, Lord Jesus, we bow before you in worship, thanksgiving, and praise, for you're worthy of it.
We're especially thrilled about your patience with us. My goodness. You really stick with us, don't you? You don't depart. You don't leave. You see all things coming. You know about all of our ways before we actually carry them out. And yet you say you've cast all our sin, all our sin behind your back, separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for this. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming here through a people group, though you are God, in order to redeem people from all the people groups on earth. Thank you for having your way. Your way is good, acceptable, and perfect. We are not. We're simply saved by grace. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, see you next week.